Well, good morning. So this morning is a special morning. We have a we have a guest with us, and uh, and so for me, I think about you know people who have impacted my life, and so this morning. Charles Sineth is here to, to share the word with us this morning. And so for my story with Charles, and he, probably, he does not remember this, but I think it was probably my junior year of college. I was at the University of Georgia, Wesley Foundation, and Tom Tanner was uh, my director and has been my pastor there. And we did a men's breakfast one morning uh, at Wesley, and it was like super early, like 7 a.m. And, um, and uh, I, was, I was early, guys. And, and so... Tom's like, hey, we have a special guest this morning, and Charles was there, and the idea was him coming and speaking about what it meant to be a man. And he sat there and, and, and just enthralled as we listened to him tell stories and as we listened to talk about what it meant to be a man who loved God and who followed him and just this, he just sat there and smiled. He talked about Jesus. And there's something about men and women who go before us, right, that that it's one thing about just leading something, but it's another thing about leading something with an authentic passion and love for Jesus. And this is Charles. You know, Charles, he's all sorts of stories about Charles. He's actually Dr. Charles Sineth, right? But he would never throw that name around, that word around. He was the pastor of First Methodist Church, made for many years, and he was the founding pastor of what now is Riverstone. And he's impacted. I mean, how many of you in here have been under Charles's leadership in some form or fashion? Yes. It's why Randall's so holy this morning. And so, did he baptize you? Probably, yeah. So, with that, Charles, we're here ultimately because of Charles Sineth. His beautiful wife, Anne. And so this morning as he comes, right he doesn't even, like, I, I've been influenced by him in ways he doesn't even know. And when I think about even the great cloud of witnesses, he's not quite in the clouds yet, right? He's got a long way to go, hopefully. But I know, I know he's a man, even today, who encourages. He came several weeks ago. I shared this story a little bit last week, but I've received about two or three emails from Charles, probably in the last year, year and a half, and they've been used by God mightily as encouragement. And so this morning, if anything happens, right, we know that a man's going to come who loves Jesus, right? And he would say, hey, just exalt Jesus, don't exalt me, that's who he is, right? So don't exalt Charles this morning, except in a second when I call you to stand up and clap for him, okay? So go ahead and come, Charles. But I want, yes, you can go ahead. This morning, we are blessed to have you, Charles. I'm going to pray for you. Thank you. And that would be good. So, Father, we thank you for Charles. God, we ask this morning that you would bless him. I pray, Father, that you would draw him into your presence this morning in such a way, God, that he would stand here this morning, God, knowing he's among family, but more importantly, knowing that he is with you this morning, and that, Father, that you were pleased with him. And I pray you'd bless every word that comes out of his mouth this morning. And that, Jesus, you would open up our ears to hear you. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Pastor and Pastor. (laughs) 
Steve for several years has been telling me he was going to invite me to come to Vintage, and he has. I came out here on Christmas Eve, the service. You had one service, 10 o'clock. I got here at 9.30, so I was able to get a seat. <laughs> if I had come at 9.45, well, somebody as old as me, one of you young ones would have given me your seat, and I would have gotten one. What a blessing. What a blessing it was to see all of those children, all of those children. And uh, so Vintage is a great church, and I'm honored to uh, be here. I've, uh, I'm, I'm getting old, and uh, one of the things that happens when you get old is you forget. I can't preach like I used to. I used to get me a three-by-five card. I was good for 30 minutes. I can't do that anymore. And, I, and I'm sorry. I apologize for that. But the Lord has taken away my memory, but he has not taken away my passion. Thank you, Lord. Ann and I live in Atherton Place, which is right behind Kennestone Hospital. It's a retirement home. It's really an old folks' home, but, they, you know, that don't uh, sell. <laughs> and uh, Ann has Alzheimer's. Ann won't be with us this time next year. She's getting ready to go home. But uh, she can't remember anything except Scripture and hymns. She can sing every word of every hymn. It's amazing what the Lord has given her, but she is sweet. She is so sweet. In fact, our daughter Janine says that Mama is sweeter than she used to be. <laughs> One of the good things about living among old people is that you come to appreciate them. I heard about one fellow who got bored in his retirement, and so he took a little storefront and he put a sign out front, healing place. He says, I heal all illnesses. And he says, if I heal you, it will be $500. If I don't heal you, I will give you 1000 There's a young doctor down the street says, I'm going to make me an easy $1,000. So he came down the clinic, came in the Old codger said, what's the problem? He said, well, the problem is I can't taste anything. I've lost my taste. The old codger says, I think we can handle that. Nurse, look in drawer 22 and bring me those drops. So she brought him a bottle of drops, and the old codger says, stick out your tongue. He stuck it out, and he dropped some. And the guy said, <laughs> said, that's not medicine, that's gasoline. said, got your taste back, $500. <laughs> week later, the doctor was really ticked off. He said, I'm going to get my money back. So he came in, said, what's the problem? He said, uh, he says, it's my memory. Can't remember nothing. Old Codger says, I think we can handle that. 
Nurse, look in drawer 22 and bring me those drops. <laughs> said, stick out your tongue. Said, oh, no, you don't. Last week that was uh, gasoline. Said, got your memory back. $500. <laughs> week later, the guy was really ticked off. Said, came down to old Codger. Said, what's the problem this week? He says, my vision. I can't see nothing. Old Codger said, well, I don't have a cure for that. I'm going to have to give you $1,000. Guy stuck out his hand. He put a $10 bill in. He said, that's not a 1000 That's a ten. Got your vision back. $500. <laughs> the moral of that story is don't fool with the old Codgers. They're smarter than you think they are. <laughs> Amen? Well, good. If you uh, have your Bible, well, you have a scripture on the Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment. Because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia. You ought to clap. Wasn't that pronunciation great? (laughs) And parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, They have had too much wine. Translation, they're drunk. And uh, one other passage of Scripture from the first letter of Peter, chapter 2, verses uh, 9 through 12, 9 through 10. Peter writes, But you, he's talking about the church, that's you. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now... You are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear Father, 
Give me grace to preach the truth with love. And give your people grace to hear either from me, from you, through me, or from you, despite me, for Jesus' sake. Amen. On the day of Pentecost, one of the manifestations of the coming of the Holy Spirit was the declaration of God's great good news in a multitude of different languages. The people who witnessed this strange phenomenon were puzzled and perplexed. They made fun of those Christians. Mockingly, they said, they have had too much wine. What they were saying, what strange conduct for those who purport to be so very religious. They are drunk. Now, we know that they weren't drunk. They weren't filled with the spirits. They were filled with the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. They weren't drunk, but for a certainty, they were peculiar. Say that word, peculiar. God's people have always been peculiar people. Peter put it so well, but you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. You were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. God's people, then and now, have always been peculiar. Peter put it so well, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a peculiar people. You are the people of God. God's people are peculiar, chosen by him to be holy, set apart by him for a very special purpose. What is that special purpose? That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. God's people, in obedience to his call, have always been peculiar. Noah was peculiar. How strange he must have appeared to his contemporary as he and his sons built an ark in the middle of the desert. Peculiar. Abraham was peculiar, leaving his homeland and family to go to a strange and foreign land that he did not know. And what about Joseph? Wasn't it peculiar when Joseph was willing to go to prison under false accusation rather than sin against God by succumbing to the lustful allurements of Potiphar's wife? Moses, he could have lived out his life in the comfort and affluence of the Pharaoh's palace, but he turned his back on that and spent 40 years in the harsh desert land of Midian, being prepared for another ministry in obedience to the call of God. Peculiar. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego could have enjoyed the good life, eating at the king's own table. But eating that food would have violated their consciences because it ran counter to the law of God. So they chose another way, a better way, yes, but decidedly a peculiar way. Hosea, the prophet of God, 
risk ridicule and ruin, the loss of standing and reputation as a man of God when he obeys God and marries Gomer, the town harlot, peculiar. John the baptizer dares to publicly rebuke King Herod for living in sin with his brother's wife. That particular behavior cost him his head. Saul of Tarsus was a leading theological scholar, a respected Pharisee on a career path that was assuredly headed to the top, membership on the Sanhedrin. He was a hero of the religious establishment as he zealously determined to stamp out any and all heresies, sects, cults that dared to challenge Orthodox Judaism. But something strange happened to him on the road to Damascus. He met Jesus. And from that moment, everything about him changed. He became a whole new creation. All the old things passed away, and behold, everything became new. No doubt to many who knew Saul, he became peculiar. That phenomenon reoccurred every time someone met Jesus, gave their life to Jesus, answered the call of Jesus. So complete was their conversion, so total their transformation that in the eyes of the world, in the eyes of their peers, in the eyes of their contemporaries, they became peculiar. Now, friends, that really shouldn't surprise us. After all, Jesus was peculiar, too. When he was only 12 years old, he was found in the temple at Jerusalem discussing systematic theology with the PhDs on the faculty there. Early in his itinerant ministry, his own brothers tried to restrain him, saying he has lost his senses. Even his own family thought Jesus was peculiar. John and Charles Wesley, George Whitfield, and members of the Holy Club at Oxford got up before daybreak every day to study the Scriptures and pray. They fasted faithfully and denied themselves many of the comforts of life in order to provide food and clothing and medicine to the poor. They went out from the ivory towers of academia to visit in the slums, the coal mines, factories, prisons, and orphanages, sharing the love of Christ and witnessing to the saving grace of Jesus with the least, the lost, and the lowest. People thought them eccentric, to say the least. Derisively, they called them Methodists, peculiar. Brothers and sisters, God calls us, chooses us, sets us apart for high and holy living. That means he calls us to be peculiar people, not weird, not bizarre, not obnoxious, not repugnant, but special, extraordinary, distinctively different. To draw, not to draw attention to ourselves by the way we dress or act, like that old guy, that John 3.16 guy with the multicolored hair we see at the football game, 
We are not called to be different, just to be different and to call attention to ourselves, but we are called to be different in order to proclaim the excellencies of the one who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light, that they may see your good works and glorify who? Your Father in heaven. Distinctively different, not to draw attention to ourselves, but to draw attention to God and witness by life and lips to his excellence. After all, how on earth will people ever believe that Jesus Christ can make any real difference in the world or in their lives if there is no clear evidence that he has made and is making a distinctive difference in our lives. Please believe me, the world will never ever believe that Jesus can make a difference in it or make a difference in them unless and until they see clear and convincing evidence that he is making a distinctive difference in you and me. You know, when you think about it, vintage 242 is special, extraordinary, distinctively different. And I suppose that makes those of you who choose to come here, worship here, study here, teach here, serve here, Lead here, invest yourselves in personal ministry, and witness here. Peculiar people. Tap yourself on the chest. If I'm a part of vintage, say it. I'm peculiar. Praise the Lord. God calls his people to be a peculiar people, distinctively different. And here's why. In the way God chooses to operate in his kingdom... Only those who dare to be different make a difference. May I repeat that? Only those who dare to be different will make a difference. Do you want to make a difference? Really make a difference? There's only one way to do it. You'll never make a difference by conforming to the ways and standards and expectations of the world. Oh, dear friends, dare to be different. Dare to conform to the standards and expectations of the kingdom of God. Then you can make a difference. But let me warn you, if you do that, the world will likely think you peculiar. I can remember a time when Christian living, Christian standards, Christian values were thought of as normal in our culture and society. I'm old. I I can remember those days. There's a few of Tom, you can remember those days. In those days, you had to do something really weird, like handle poisonous snakes to be thought of as peculiar. Not anymore. Today, we live in a secular, humanistic, agnostic culture that thinks anyone peculiar who holds to a biblical worldview believes the Bible to be the inspired Word of God and His prescribed standard for faith and living, seeks to know and live by the will of God, participates faithfully in the life and ministry of the church, believes in and practices prayer, honors the Lord's day, 
is a good steward of all God's gifts, sacrificially tithes in order to support God's enterprises on earth, believes that people are lost without Jesus, and so engages in personal evangelism and missions, intentionally sharing their faith by life and lips, holds that all life, born and unborn, is sacred, honors marital vows for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, for as long as we both shall live, believes that sex is a gift from God to be practiced and enjoyed only by wives and husbands within the bonds of holy matrimony, commits themselves to disciplined living, self-denial, treats their body and minds as temples of the Holy Spirit, and refuses to contaminate them with anything that is harmful to their life or to their witness. Hold staunchly to scriptural standards and values and priorities in life. Believes promises are to be kept. Commitments are to be honored. Life is to be lived not just going along to get along, but with a sense of responsibility and accountability to God. Lives life from an eternal perspective, willing to forgo the fleeting pleasures of sin now for lasting rewards yet to come. People like that are perceived by this culture and society as peculiar. Listen, light is always peculiar in the midst of darkness. Truth is always peculiar in the midst of prevailing falsehood. Integrity is always peculiar in the midst of prevailing tolerance and compromise and political correctness. A book that I have read and reread in the last few years has had a dramatic impact upon my life. The name of the book is The Insanity of God. Any of you read it? The Insanity of God. Get it. The author of the book is a, uses a pseudonym, Nick Ripkin. He writes under a synonym because his life would be in danger if he did not. You see, he is a missionary to the persecuted church around the world. In the book, he tells of his visits and personal encounters with our courageous and suffering sisters and brothers in the kingdom in many parts of the world that he cannot even name in his book for fear of reprisal upon himself or those of whom he writes. One of the martyrs of whom he writes is a man in Russia named Dmitri. Say that, Dmitri. Dmitri was a simple worker. In his little village, the communist authorities had closed his church and arrested and imprisoned the village pastor. So Dmitri began to pastor his family. When others in the village heard what he was doing, they asked if they could come and join in with them. It wasn't long before they had dozens of believers in their house church. 
Maybe they called it vintage. The communist authorities heard about it, and Clay came to close down the church and warned Dimitri that if he continued what he was doing, they would put him in prison. In obedience to the call of God, Dimitri continued what he was doing, and he was put in prison for 17 years. In prison, he was not allowed to have a Bible nor a hymn book. So in his cell, he had to rely upon his memory of Scripture and a few hymns that he had learned. Each morning, he began his day by singing a rousing hymn that declared his convictions about God. Every day, he would get up and stand at attention in his cell and lustily and boldly sing his heart song to God. At first, the other prisoners were agitated and banged their tin cups on the bars and tried to drown out Dimitri. But despite their derision and catcalls and insults, Dimitri, like Daniel Laveau, continued his practice of personal devotions and witness to his faith. His fellow prisoners derided him. The prison guards beat him and put him in solitary confinement. The warden threatened Dimitri with even worse punishment and death. But Dimitri persisted. He was a God-pleaser. He was peculiar. One day, Dimitri was taken from his cell and drowned, dragged down a car to what he was sure was a place of his execution. As they were taking Dimitri to the place of execution, the strangest thing happened. 1,500 prisoners who before had ridiculed and derided him stood in their cells and sang from memory the heart song that they had heard Dimitri sing every morning for 17 years. Dimitri's guards had instantly released their hold on his arms and stepped away from him in terror. One of them demanded to know, Who are you? Dimitri stood, straightened his back, and boldly proclaimed, I am a son of the living God and a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. Strangely and unexpectedly, because the warden was concerned that soon the entire prison population might be converted, Dimitri was released. No doubt about it. Dimitri was peculiar. But God used his peculiarity to touch the lives of his fellow prisoners and win their respect and admiration. Don't you see? Because he dared to be different, Dimitri made a difference. Good news, good news, good news. In the world's opinion, peculiar people seem to be strange, weird, bizarre. But not to God. In God's opinion, to be peculiar means to be chosen, called out, special, 
extraordinary, set apart, distinctively different in order to make a life-changing, people-changing, culture-changing, world-changing difference. That's God's opinion of peculiar people. And brothers and sisters, in the final assessment, God's opinion is the only one that matters. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your call upon our lives to be distinctively different, called out, set apart to make a difference. Help us to be faithful to your call, to be obedient to it, that you may use us to make a difference in the world. In Jesus' name, amen. There's an old chorus that I remember as a little boy. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. I want to ask our musicians to lead us in singing that. And just remain seated. But sing it and let it, let it come out of your heart. And let it be your prayer of recommitment. We sing this. <laughs>